Welcome to the Brisbane Property Podcast with your hosts, Melinda and Scott Jennison from Streamline Property Buyers, your local Brisbane property specialists. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Brisbane Property Podcast. My name is Scott Jennison. I'm the Acquisitions Manager at Streamline Property Buyers, and we're very, very excited today. We've got a special guest, the CEO from REIQ, Antonia Mercarella. Welcome. Welcome, Antonio. We're absolutely um, excited to have you join our podcast today because I know just how clever you are and um, all of the information that you will share with our audience will be very well received. So thank you so much for coming on and um, and welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Thank you both so much. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you. So you've been very busy of late, we've, we've noticed. And can you just give us, our listeners a little bit of an understanding of your role um, as CEO of REIQ? Uh, well, it has. It's been such a busy couple of years, really. Uh, so I lead uh, the Real Estate Institute of Queensland, or the REIQ. Uh, we're the peak body for real estate here in Queensland. Uh, we have uh, been around for over 100 years now. I think we're about 105 years old. Um, as the peak body, uh, our role is to advocate for uh, the real estate community, so real estate professionals. But beyond that, we're also interested in making sure that the legislative and regulatory and policy settings um, that that surround um, uh, real estate are the right ones. So we want to make sure that uh, transactions are happening as efficiently and uh, effectively as possible. And that really then includes all the different stakeholders involved in those relationships, purchasers, vendors, tenants, and of course, property owners. Uh, And of course, uh, something that's not not often understood about um, real estate uh, is that there's so many different sectors we cover. So when we talk about um, real estate, of course, I think the punter on the street thinks immediately about a property manager or a salesperson, a residential salesperson, but we actually represent a broader group than that. Business brokers also come under a real estate qualification, buyers agents, of course, as you'll both appreciate, uh, auctioneers and, uh, and of course, commercial real estate agents as well. And also we deal with, um, to some extent, with resident letting agents as well. So quite a big group of people. And, uh, and so we're uh, the peak body and we are also a membership body. Um, but that is, of course, very much voluntary. So membership of the REIQ is, uh, is not mandated. Um, and so um, in, addition to, in addition to those things, we're also a registered training organisation or an RTO. So we deliver the real estate qualification to gain entry, either to become a registered uh, real estate practitioner or a licensed agent. Uh, and of course, we also put out the, um, the forms, uh, the real estate forms through our RealWorks platform that are used for real estate transactions. Big responsibility um, for the CEO of an organisation like that, um, Antonia, and I'm sure, you know, you don't take that job lightly. A huge responsibility also in representing um, the organisation as the voice for the industry. And I know you provide um, a huge um, advocacy role in terms of um, voicing the rights and wrongs of, of various, you know, policy changes. Um, we we see you quite often, you know, representing the industry, um, not always representing the rights of, of a real estate agent, but the rights of, you know, what is right for, for people generally. Um, Antonia, I know there's been a lot of 
policy change. There's been a lot of legislative change, some that's been implemented, some that's been repealed. We've had reforms proposed. Some have come through, some have not yet come through. Let's talk through some of that. First of all, the big one that um, seemed to really shake up the industry um, for a short period of time was that Queensland land tax regime. Um, I know you had a very strong opinion on behalf of the industry uh, when this was legislated. Can you talk us through your role in helping um, to voice the concerns in the industry um, and subsequently what happened with that, that uh, legislation? Yeah, thanks. Um, and, and, and yes, advocacy is very much at the heart of what the REIQ is about. Um, and uh, we do try and provide a really fair and balanced view. Uh, we're sometimes uh, uh, seen as being anti-tenant and pro-investor uh, or, or only concerned with the rights of real estate agents. But as the peak body, um, we are not anti-tenant. Um, all of those different stakeholders are absolutely necessary and essential to any real estate transaction. But what we try and do um, is we try and educate the community about the importance of um, confidence when it comes to the property market. Um, I think one of the, to go back to what you said about the responsibility that comes with being the CEO of an organisation like this, ultimately uh, housing is, is central to what we're about. Um, yes, we also represent commercial property, but so much of what we're about is about residential property. Now, whether you own that property or uh, you rent it, I think we can all agree that shelter is absolutely essential for all of us um, and, and, and so much a sense of security and a sense of place comes with, with, with property. So um, it is a really big responsibility. Um, and when um, the, the topic that you're referring to, there's, there's been such a huge amount of legislative change um, that's already been implemented and indeed um, further legislative change that is planned for, for, for the balance of this year and into next year as well. Um, the multi-jurisdictional land tax regime that you're referring to, for us, it was... Um, it was quite different. Um, we would normally really only advocate on legislative reform that is uh, in the form of property-related reform. Uh, so it might be about rental law reform. It might be about property law uh, reform. But in this instance, it was, uh, it was of course, Treasury that came out and, uh, and announced that they were proposing to uh, introduce uh, we've labelled it a, a multi-jurisdictional land tax and effectively what, um, what, what Treasury was proposing and ultimately the laws did pass but were subsequently repealed was that um, the land tax regime in Queensland um, would do a very unique thing and an unprecedented thing, uh, which is instead of charging a land tax bill, um, based on your property holdings or land holdings within the borders of Queensland, um, and and based on the on the value of that of that land holding, your, your land tax bill would be calculated. Um, the proposal was to include 
any property that that is held across all Australian jurisdictions um, and to then effectively work out your land tax bill um, based on the total value of that land holding. Now, you can appreciate when we received a phone call about this, it was just before Christmas um, two years ago, I think, um, I remember getting the call from Treasury. We got a, we got a heads up. Um, to, to say that it was being announced the next day. And um, I remember actually thinking it was a bit of a joke. Um, I, the, the person who called me, I, I think I actually laughed and said, is this a joke? Um, and, of course, um, it, 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 it wasn't a joke and, uh, and they did progress with it. And I think, um, I think what was really fascinating about that is that... Um, this, this principle of if you think about what land tax is for and the purposes for which that money is then used, it's all for the benefit of Queenslanders, as it should be. Mm. Um, you're, 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 you're asking a person to pay land tax and that, that money then gets used for a variety of purposes. But we couldn't quite, we couldn't wrap our heads around this concept of um of it being calculated on property that wasn't even within our own borders. Um, and certainly when we started to talk to people about it, um, I think we were all in the same position where we all, we all just couldn't quite understand how they had dreamt this up. And, uh, and then, of course, um, we did lead the campaign um, asking for, well, first of all, we led a campaign to try and prevent it from becoming, um, from, from becoming law. And then ultimately we continued to lead that campaign and then subsequently it was repealed. But really I don't know that there was an understanding of the impact um, that that had and would have had, of course, um, not just on uh, people who own residential property, but I think there really wasn't a good understanding of the impact it would also have on commercial property, the impact that it would have on business. So you can imagine if you had premises that were domiciled here in Queensland, but also you have a company that might have multi-premises uh, across uh, across a variety of different jurisdictions. So again, the impact it could have poss possibly had where, again, we were just starting to delve into that commercial issue and, and, and the impact on business. And then fortunately, we got the news that had been repealed, but we were really interested to see how many businesses it would have affected where potentially we may have seen people saying, well, you know what, we'll shut up shop in Queensland because if we don't have any premises and people based here in Queensland, we get this monkey off of our back. Mm. Um, and let's keep in mind as well that there hadn't been any consultation on, on this regime or on this proposed regime um, before it was announced. Um, so I'm really thrilled to say that that was repealed. But I think what's important to understand is that although it was repealed and we are grateful for that, I don't think we understand the impact that it had for the short time that it was even, um, that even before, it, because it never commenced, no. to be fair. But I don't think that sometimes politicians and government understands the impact that these things have on the psyche of an That's investor right. or on the psyche of a business owner. Mm -hmm. So I, I actually think it did quite a bit of damage. 
I was actually going to say, uh, we were probably scratching our heads as well, the same as you. Um, and, and you took the words out of my mouth and I was actually going to talk about the consultation side of it because obviously you weren't consulted on this, but is it something that they do consult, the government will consult REIQ on a lot of these things when it comes to property? Look, it, it varies. Um, there have absolutely been times, if, if, I, if I consider the history of legislative change uh, in the time I've been at the REIQ, um, there have absolutely been instances where consultation takes place. In some instances, uh, consultation and legislative change can take years. I will say that in the case of the multi-jurisdictional land tax, I can say hand on heart, there was no consultation beforehand, none whatsoever. Um, and similarly, there have been other instances where laws have been passed without consultation. A good example of that is, of course, just recently here in Queensland, um, the government introduced um, what they defined as urgent uh, rental law reform, and uh, they have uh, now passed laws. In fact, they introduced proposed laws into Parliament and passed them the exact same day. Um, and these are the laws that um, limit the number of times a rent increase can be implemented. Now, again, um, there was no consultation uh, before that particular law was passed. So um, it's a little bit of both is what I'd say. And, and history proves that every time they don't consult with relevant stakeholders, it goes drastically wrong. Very good point. And um, I know that there's, you know, bodies out there that, that try to capture some of that change in sentiment in terms of how investors, um, uh, you know, their motivation to buy or sell can be influenced by these big policy changes. And PIPA, uh, the Property Investment Professionals of Australia, um, produced a report in at the end of 2022. And this is where they survey their property investors from around Australia and, and in that survey off the back of that proposed land tax legislation or the amendments that were proposed, 19% of investors had intended to sell their property within the next 12 months. Now, as you've pointed out, Antonia, this legislation, whilst it was um, passed through Parliament, it never actually came in and yet this is how significantly it impacted um, the sentiment of investors that already owned property, the fact that nearly 20% were intended to sell out, that's a big shift. And this is occurring at a time where we already have um, too many uh, people wanting somewhere to call home and not enough uh, properties available to house these people. We have a rental crisis, and I know this is something that's often talked about, but um, off the back of you know very low supply of rental properties, we've got record low vacancy rates here in Brisbane um, and certainly throughout many parts of Queensland. But now we're also dealing with um, more rental reforms. Stage one rental reforms, they've already come through. Let's talk through stage two rental reforms um, because this is the next big hurdle for, for property investors that, that may already own properties here in Queensland, but potentially for those looking to invest. Can you just talk us through what's being proposed and, um, and what work you're doing um, to help educate um, you know, people about the, this before it is legislated? Yeah, thanks. Um, I, I think before I answer that, I think um, you make a really important point. Here in Queensland, we have a, a slightly higher uh, uh, rental population, around 36% of Queenslanders rent their home. It's a little bit above the national average. 
And what we know, what the data tells us is that more than 90%, I think around uh, 96%, um, of that housing supply is coming from private investors. So it is the private investors who do most of the heavy lifting when it comes to housing renters here in Queensland. I think that's a really important point to make. Mm. Um, the government provides just under 4% of social housing. Uh, so I think, uh, to be clear here, I don't quote that statistic in a way that suggests that, therefore, the law should be uh, swayed in a way so as to uh, protect investors only. Of course, that's not what I'm saying. I think we need, I think it's really important that um, in Queensland and across Australia, we have really good, strong, robust uh, tenancy laws that provide important statutory protections and rights for renters. Mm. So I really want to be really clear about that. And I think the REIQ has actually a proud history of working with a number of stakeholders and often um, we do take position about rental law reform that is very much based on tenant protection and it's 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 interesting to me the way people are often surprised when we do that so I thought I might just say that from the outset um, having said all of that um, I think what concerns us is that um, the Palaszczuk government has been really exclusively focused, I would say, over, say, the last four years, has been exclusively focused on tenant, on, on laws that give greater tenant rights and greater tenant protections. And I do think that there is a view um, that the legislation is becoming, um, uh, it's losing its balance and, and swinging too far in the favour of, of renters. So, um, uh, stage one rental reforms has, of course, uh, introduced new laws that um, prevent an owner from saying no to pets. Um, there's new protections in there for domestic and family violence victims, uh, enabling them greater freedom to, to terminate a tenancy with, with, with very minimal liability. Uh, the REIQ actually supported those reforms. Um, there's also been reforms to the way a tenancy can be ended. And what's really important to note that in stage one, we also see, saw the introduction of minimum housing standards, mm. which is actually something that the REIQ advocated for for a number of years. So that was stage one. Um, now, stage, and then, of course, in April, um, we saw these other laws passed that I've already just mentioned, which is to limit the number of times rent can be increased to once per 12 months. Yeah. So then we're on to stage two. Um, now, to be clear, we have said to government, can we take a break? We've got legislative fatigue. Mm. Um, keeping in mind that, of course, in 2020, something called COVID-19 came along. Mm. And, uh, and, of course, we also had COVID eviction moratorium laws. So mm. we are all feeling pretty exhausted. Um, so what does stage two encompass? Um, well, there's a number of proposed changes. Um, some of the key ones, modifications and changes to properties. So if I group those two topics together, Broadly speaking, what government is considering uh, is uh, basically saying that a tenant has uh, the right to request modifications to a property and those modifications would be based on accessibility, 
um, safety and security. Um, so we're talking about things like adding ramps, grab rails um, if, if, uh, if for, for a rental with a disability, for example. Um, Safety-wise, it might be adding locks uh, to windows, to doors. Uh, it, really, it could be other things as well. could be security systems, alarm systems, etc. cetera. Um, so the idea is there's a couple of different proposals. Uh, at the more extreme end, you've got one option, which is to say that a tenant could simply go ahead and make those modifications without even having to ask consent. Mm -hmm. And then um, the second option is that uh, the tenant has to request the, the consent and an owner can only say no if they, if they can meet or establish a prescribed ground, very similar to what they've done with pet laws now. Mm. Um, so, and then really the same principles apply when it comes to personalisation or personalisation changes. So this is where the tenant might want to paint a wall, um, paint all of the walls, the tenant might prefer to put some carpet in, the tenant might prefer to um, um, plant a garden, for example, all of these sorts of things, as the title suggests, for personalisation, for aesthetic purposes and, to, and for, to, to make the home feel more like what they would like it to feel like and look like. And, again, the principle is the same. Um, the starting position at the more extreme end is that the tenant can go ahead and do that and then um, a more... Um, a less um, extreme option is to require the owner um, to give consent. But again, the owner's ability to say uh, to, to withhold consent will be will be quite curtailed. Um, and so, so that's modifications and changes. Um, one of the key reforms. There's also a, a range of different reforms that are proposed when it comes to access and privacy. Um, so these include things like limiting the number of times a routine inspection can be conducted. Um, instead of once every three months, the proposal is that you could only do that physically once per annum. Mm. And the tenant could be required to take some photographs or some video. There's also further uh, limitations that are being proposed on the reasons that you can access the property while it's rented and also the amount of notice that has to be given. Then in the privacy space, there's uh, a range of proposals that seek to limit photographs that can be taken uh, when inspections are being conducted. Uh, also, uh, some proposed changes in relation to the the nature of questions and the type of documentation that can be sought or requested when an, when a tenant um, or when an applicant makes a uh, uh, an application for a for a rental property, um, and then if we move to I guess um, bonds and and fees and rent again a series of changes proposed there probably the most interesting one and certainly one that we're concerned about is a break lease scenario so. Uh, this is where the parties have entered into a fixed-term tenancy agreement and, of course, the owner um, must respect that fixed term, but a tenant does have the right to say, actually, I've changed my mind, I want to go early, and, of course, we call that a break lease. And the proposal is that um, the amount that can be charged to that tenant um, where they have breached the contract is limited. At the upper end, it's four weeks um, uh, four weeks worth of rent, but that will only be where the balance of the term 
is at least has at least seventy five percent to run, um, and then it goes it diminishes down to um, only one week's worth of rent. Um, so again. Um, we can talk about our views on these things, but I'll just let you know what's being proposed. Mm. Um, the other proposal is to potentially review how much bond can be charged and also looking at the way bond return processes work. And then finally, there are some changes to the way that um, the way that rent can be paid, rent payment methods, and also some changes that relate potentially to utility charges. Um, there's a proposal that a tenant shouldn't have to pay for water consumption, um, potentially, and, uh, and also some changes proposed to uh, if water consumption is to be charged for or utilities are to be charged for. There's limits on um, how long you have uh, to be able to charge um, the renter for those, and and look, that's not a that's not a um, that's certainly not a, 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 a comprehensive summary of everything that's being proposed. But I would say they're probably the key the key themes and key priorities. And there's a lot to digest in in what you've run through, Antonia. And for those that are not yet aware of some of these proposed changes, it is important as a property investor to to really understand this. Um, and also, if you are thinking of investing, it is important also to understand that um, this is something that could be legislated. Um, it is not yet legislated. It is at proposal stage, but um, obviously it's about creating an environment that is fair for both tenants and landlords and based off some of these proposed changes, it feels a little one-sided at this point in time. And I'm guessing um, that the REIQ really are trying to balance the needs of um, providing or ensuring that tenants have the opportunity to enjoy peaceful residence in, in their chosen home, but also understanding this really fine balance between driving more of these investors out of the market. And you've mentioned potentially 96% of Queensland accommodation for those that rent is provided by mum and dad investors. So we really don't want to disincentivize these people more, especially off the back of some of these other legislative changes that have already impacted sentiment so much. Um, it's just making the current situation worse. Would you agree? Well, I think so. I think, I think I'm conscious that whenever I speak about this, there will be criticism that follows um, that we are acting out of self-interest and, of course, the REIQ would say this. Again, I think that, that it reflects perhaps a misunderstanding of who we are and what our role is. Um, again, I think there's a, a view that it's that it's based on some form of anti-tenant sentiment. That's that's not what's driving this. I think um, I think there comes a point for all of us where we say it's all too hard. I think in the current environment, it is really challenging. Um, we've got um, we've got to remember we've got we've got investors that are at different stages. Um, there's no doubt there's some investors out there that have managed to buy a property at a particular point in time. Um, they've, they've, they've paid a certain amount for it. Um, obviously, rents have gone up considerably in the last few years. And then we've also got people who have bought at the peak of the market uh, in the last few years. Now, they're, they're at different, they've got different, they've got different, um, They've bought in at a different at a different time. Their price point is different. The 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 level of, of mortgage is different. Um, and so you know, I think I think trying to think about this as just 
greedy investors are everywhere. It's very short-sighted. And I think we have to understand that in the majority of cases, um, we know um, that the, and there's always exceptions, but, but in the majority of cases, you're looking at an investor that probably has one investment property, mm-hmm. possibly two, but usually one. It's someone who has um, stuck their neck out somehow managed to save enough for that all-important deposit. Mm-hmm. And as I always say, they've come along, they've, they've paid higher stamp duty on account of the fact that they're an investor. Mm-hmm. They're, paying higher, um, they're paying higher interest rates on account of being an investor. They might be paying higher local government rates. Potentially they're paying land tax depending on the value of their holdings. And, uh, and of course, we all know that the cost of ownership um, is, 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 is going up. Um, just just like the cost of rent is going up, we know that repairs and maintenance is that that's more expensive. So I think we've got to understand that there's a certain level of risk and financial responsibility that comes with owning a property. Um, and of course, you take that on when you make a decision to invest in property. You, that that's that's the decision you make. But but I think when we when we look at at what's happening and this constant legislative reform where government comes along and says I'm going to um, prevent you from being able to say no to this I'm going to um, uh, create a law that mandates that you must do this I'm going to um, come in if we think about the most recent laws which are retrospective I am going to interfere with previously agreed contractual relations, and even though you've budgeted for that rent increase and you've done that, acting very lawfully, I'm now going to pass new laws that retrospectively apply and prevent you from being able to actually implement that rent increase. So when you think about all of those things mm. and, and the financial responsibility and the risk that comes with it, I think what we're seeing is that more and more investors are making the decision that it's all too hard Mm. um, and that they can invest their dollars elsewhere. Now, again, whenever I say that, there's a certain cohort who rub their hands with glee and say, well, that's good. We want investors to leave because if investors leave, it'll mean that more people can buy their home and, and they won't need to rent. Now, my response to that is... Again, we're the REIQ. Um, we we will we we support people becoming property owners and homeowners if that's what they want. There's nothing wrong with renting, but if you want to buy, um, we're the REIQ. We'd like to see you buy. But this very black and white, simplistic view that if investors leave, then miraculously we'll all be able to rush out and buy the properties that they've then sold. Unfortunately, it's it's not as easy as that. Mm. We know that there's a particular proportion of our community who are not going to meet the requirements of being able to. They, they won't meet the criteria of being able to take out a loan. Mm. Um, and, of course, we've also got to recognise that there's a proportion of, of our community who don't want to own. They actually prefer to rent. Um, and so I think when you consider all of those things, what we're saying is we're not saying that the law should be um, should be created in a way that somehow gives a huge number of advantages to property owners and, and, and let's forget about the tenant. That's not what we're saying. But what we are saying is that history tells us 
And when we hear about lots of anecdotes, what we know is that we all have a tipping point. And we are seeing that with a number of investors where they're, where they're reaching that tipping point and they're saying, I'm out, it's all too hard. Now, we've already seen that when stage one was stage one rental reforms were being proposed, mm. we, had, uh, we had lots of feedback from property owners who said to us very clearly, if this happens, I'll, 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 I'll sell. Mm. Now, I'm not saying every investor is going to sell. I'm not trying to be hysterical about this. But again, when we look at our current rental crisis and when we look at the shortage of housing that we're facing for renters at the moment, if even a mere 5%, even if we were really conservative and said 5% of investors will leave, you think about the extraordinary number when you think that there's about 650,000 um, rental properties, just 5% leaving would create a very, very significant um, uh, consequence. Mm. And again, it's difficult to grab precise data on this, so I, I'll qualify it by saying that the, the numbers are a little bit rubbery. But CoreLogic's done some really interesting analysis on properties that uh, they are confident are owned or were owned by investors mm. and and numbers the, those numbers do not lie you can see a very clear uh, path a very clear pattern um, started in about early uh, late 2020 early 2021 where we started to see this spike in the number of investment properties that were being sold mm. now again I appreciate that People were selling for a variety of reasons. Uh, we know that um, that does also coincide with when we had a really buoyant sales market. So there's no doubt that some investors decided to sell in order to take advantage of those conditions. But but we know that, that a proportion, we won't know what proportion, but a proportion did sell because of rental law reforms, mm, yes. both stage one and the fact that it was known from the outset that stage two was coming. Mm. And, and we know that anecdotally from real estate agents we talk about um, that, and, and even investors who I've had direct conversations uh, with have said to me, we had enough, we sold. Mm. It's the, interesting. The, um, the housing summit, Antonia, I, um, I think October 2022, REIQ participated in that. Um, there's obviously a lot of issues, a lot of items that came out of that and, and were discussed. Um, we've, we've probably highlighted a couple to, to just chat today. We won't go through the whole the whole list of things that would probably keep us here all day. So um, stamp duty. So there's a couple that we've, we've sort of highlighted to ask about and just to get an idea of um, if things are likely to happen, what's the latest on some of these. But one of them is the, um, to remove stamp duty for over 55s on a purchase of a home to encourage downsizing? Yeah, so I'd love to tell you that that's coming. In fact, uh, we've got the state budget next week, uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll wait and see what comes out of that. But, look, I think if uh, stamp duty reform was on the cards, we would know about that. Yep. Uh, it's, it's, I, it's very unlikely that we'll see any reform in that space, um, certainly not in the next state budget. Uh, that's something, look, our position on stamp duty is a very long-standing one. I think there's a number of organisations who are aligned with us on this. Even if you think about the Henry Tax Review some, well, over a decade ago now, I think, I think most economists all agree, I think we're all in furious agreement that 
it's um it's a bad tax it's um it's a massive financial impost to so many mm. and uh and we think it's overdue for reform yep. uh, now the challenge we have in queensland and to be fair across all jurisdictions is that we have state and territory governments who um who have become very addicted to that to that revenue and rely on it mm. So, look, but we have seen some other states um, looking at stamp duty reform. I think just to, to the, if I go to the, to in particular to the over 55s cohort, um, what we're trying to say there is that we know that um, we have an ageing population in, in Queensland and in Australia. We also know that often people will sit in properties that are no longer um, I guess, age appropriate. I hope that's respectful. Um, big houses on big blocks of lands, lots of extra bedrooms, and they're empty nesters often. Mm -hmm. But we also know that they often sit on these properties uh, because, uh, because of the costs associated with, with downsizing. So we have seen the federal government doing some interesting things um, some, uh, in that space, and we think uh, we would like to see the state government also playing a role there to try and really encourage more of those. Uh, we're saying over 55s, um, that seems to be the new... It, it seems to have sort of started at over 65, 60, and now down to 55, but anyway... Um, uh, I'm, not sure, dropped down I'm, a bit I'm not sure that I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, leaving, putting our personal issues aside, uh, um, I, I do think that um, that's, that's a logical starting point. It would be great to start um, freeing up some of that housing, doing more to encourage, um, uh, encourage uh, older people to sell those houses and free them up for, for the young um, you know, growing families. So, uh, but look, I, I'd be I'd be stunned if we see any announcements about that in the next budget. And I just want to correct Melinda that I don't I don't qualify for that. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I did not say you did. <laughs> um, the housing summit, Antonia. I know that there were a lot of proposals put forward by REIQ and. Um, and a lot of solutions that were proposed to to try and improve outcomes. Um, as a general wrap, how were those um, solutions or ideas received? And you know, are politicians willing to listen when you do sit down at a roundtable like this? Look, I went into the housing summit feeling. Um, I would say optimistic. I went in with an open mind. I appreciate that there was a healthy level of cynicism that surrounded that event. Mm. I would say that all of the stakeholders that were in the room, I, I think there was a real sense of goodwill. I think mm. irrespective, when you bring together such a diverse group of stakeholders, everyone's going to take a different position on what's required and how we achieve a certain outcome. I will say that we were all in furious agreement about the fact that we need we desperately need more supply. Mm. So that was all of that that was agreed upon universally. Our challenge is, is how we get there. Um, because you'll have some organizations who will say that taxation settings uh, and legislative settings are too much in favor of investors. Um, then you'll get um, people who say you actually need to do more to incentivize and encourage investment. 
And then you'll get something in between, which is also around how do we get, how do we help out first home buyers? Um, that might be in the form of grants, or it might be concessions, or it might be um, other 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 mechanisms. So, um, I think obviously a lot of focus at that summit was on those in our community who are particularly vulnerable. Um, they're going to be people who are on low income, um, low incomes, uh, domestic and family violence victims, uh, this emerging cohort, which is, which is a really significant problem in this country, which is single women over the age of 55, who, you know, that, that's our really big at-risk group at the moment as well. Um, and then as you can appreciate, um, people, Queenslanders with disabilities, uh, Queenslanders um, uh, with, uh, you know, uh, from Indigenous communities, et cetera. Um, so, you know, I guess what I would say is I think what was really great about that summit is the ability for all of us to listen to one another and see that everyone's coming at it and seeing things through through a certain prism and we all have our own experiences um, depending on what, what sector we work in or who we represent or what we're interested in. Um, you, you know, I think the challenge now is how will we solve this crisis? Mm. Uh, and I think, I think there's an appetite to look at longer-term solutions and I think, I think that's happening in the background the problem is the here and now, how yeah. we fix the here and now. Um, that's the challenge. Um, and, you know, and that's, I guess, where our position is. The here and now, you can't just construct housing overnight. Mm-hmm. Remember that this is, this, is, this is all happening contemporaneously with the, you know, where we're still experiencing the, the effects of, of covid you know, and that sort of ridiculous spike in, in building and the construction crisis and, you know, we, we all know all of those stories. So, and I guess that's where we say, well, surely the obvious solution is that we know there's a bunch of housing, established housing that is owned by investors. And at the moment, people are either keeping that property um, on, on short-term letting sites or it's uh, it might be that you've got a um, you might be in a financial position where you can afford to have it empty. Mm. And what we're saying is, surely we we should be focused on finding ways to encourage anyone who's got a property sitting vacant or available, or is sitting on the short term letting market. How can we encourage them? to bring those over to the long-term permanent rental market. Now, even that's controversial, right, because we'll get criticised on that on on two fronts. One group will criticise us and say, it's not your job to tell investors what they should and shouldn't do with their property. It's their asset. And then we'll have another group over here who say it's disgraceful that there are people who own properties and have them vacant or have them on the short-term letting market when people are sleeping in tents and in cars. Mm. So it, it's not an easy uh, balancing act, but our view is instead of constantly coming at this issue with a stick, why don't we actually start thinking about asking questions of those investors as to why, why haven't you got that property on the long-term rental market mm. and understanding what's causing that and then 
impacts and then finding ways to look at how we can put those properties onto the long-term rental market. And we're not about dictating that. You know, we're not saying let's tax them or let's, let's punish them. We're saying there's got to be a reason why they've made that decision. Let's understand what's motivating that reason so that we can find some better solutions. And surely we can all agree that that's sensible in the current rental crisis, you know, because we've just got to be realistic. We're not going to be able to address the here and now unless we start finding ways of utilising established housing and established uh, other forms of stock. Mm. I know we, you know, as buyers agents in Brisbane, um, a lot of people do come to us and there is still an appetite for people to purchase investment properties. Um, we know in Brisbane, you know, there is strong prospects for capital growth um, into the future. We also have um, a buoyant rental market uh, where yields are attractive compared to other capital city markets around the country. Uh, we've also had strong rental price growth. So there's still a cohort of investors despite the headwinds that are attracted to investing here in Brisbane. When we purchase on behalf of investors um, and those properties settle and they're put up for rent right now, it's very clear that you know there's simply not enough homes because there's people lining up um, to to apply or to, to inspect those properties as multiple applications on the table. This is the reality of, of the current situation where there's such limited supply and yet such high demand. Now we know Antonia um, that the REIQ have also um, you know been lucky to to have a seat you you personally. Um, you've been appointed to the Queensland State Government's housing supply expert panel for a two-year term. What does this panel do and, you know, what progress is being made there? Yeah, so uh, so this is uh, a panel that was established uh, earlier this year. Uh, it's a group of 12 of us uh, that the Deputy Premier has assembled. Um, we come from a variety of backgrounds. Uh, uh, we've got uh, urban planners on there. Uh, we have people who work in community housing sector, um, uh, we've got representatives from um, Aboriginal housing um, sector as well. So a real variety is what I would say. I think we've got uh, architecture representative as well on there. Uh, so, so I guess really our job is to um, give uh, insights and provide advice um, to uh, the Deputy Premier, to that department about a range of, of different initiatives uh, but again, um, I'll, I'll be careful here because there is um, there's, there's confidentiality associated with that panel. But what I will say and what has been publicly said is that really for the next two years, um, our focus is very much on addressing um, the housing crisis. So uh, the focus is to look for solutions. How can we um, create more housing, more affordable housing, more appropriate housing uh, to meet the needs of Queenslanders both today and, and in the future. Uh, so I think, again, what I would say is that the group that's been assembled is um, I think we come from a variety of backgrounds and we bring a lot of different insights. Um, so, again, I'm always hopeful and optimistic. I, I, you're obviously very, very busy. And, and look, I, I think you're doing a great job as well as the REIQ, uh, Antonia. So 
Uh, I know that Melinda gets involved um, through the REBA, the Real Estate Buyers Agents, and, and their involvement um, with REIQ to obviously improve the industry. Um, and I think that's a really, really good thing that people like yourselves um, work really hard to improve the industry for everyone as well. So um, I look, I'll wrap it up now. I'll, I'll let Melinda say goodbye for the end. But thank you very, very much for joining us for a chat. Um, it's been good talking. Um, and as usual, I'll let Melinda close it off and we'll talk again soon. Thanks very much for listening and bye for now. Antonio, I'm absolutely thrilled with um, the information that we've been able to unpack today. I mean, you know, I was excited when you agreed to come on our podcast and I think that the information that you shared will be absolutely invaluable for our listeners. A lot of information that you've shared is not information that um, a lot of people would already know about. So I feel that that's been, you know, really informative. And I think that um, there'll be a lot of people that would like to thank you. And I'd certainly like to thank you myself for giving your time this afternoon to record this episode. Um, and yeah, thank you once again. Well, thank you. Thank, thanks for inviting me on. It's been a real pleasure. And um, I'll, I'll just say in closing that I think, um, it, it's, it's a real thrill to watch the way that the buyer's agents and, and that particular sector, to watch it growing. I think uh, selling agents, that's th that concept or that sector is something we're all really familiar with. But I think uh, the emergence and, and growth of buyer's agency in Queensland and across Australia, I think, is a great thing. Uh, I think uh, it's really important that parties are represented by a professional who's looking after their best interests. And, uh, and I think ultimately uh, that results in a much better transaction for everyone. So, um, so thanks very much for having me uh, be part of your podcast today. It's been great fun. Well, as always, um, I shall wrap up the podcast. Um, Antonio, it's been a pleasure. Um, as always, if you have enjoyed this episode, um, all you need to do is head on over to um, leave us a five-star review, of course. Um, we love your comments and feedback. Um, but if you're not already a subscriber, please Google the Brisbane Property Podcast. You'll be able to subscribe on your favourite podcast player. Um, and if you're not already on our email list, head on over to streamlineproperty.com.au, hit on the podcast tab, enter your details there, then you will not miss out on the free downloads that do come with various episodes. We look forward to speaking with you again next week. Until then, bye for now. Thanks for tuning in today. Please remember everything we have spoken about on this podcast is general in nature and we always recommend that you obtain independent advice in relation to your specific circumstances. If you liked today's episode, don't forget to subscribe or leave us a review on iTunes and of course tell your friends about us. If you would like to get in contact, please visit www.brisbanepropertypodcast.com.au or email us at info at brisbanepropertypodcast.com.au. Feel free to send in any questions and we will try to answer them in future episodes.